Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, a show dedicated to our shared surroundings with industry heavyweights that are dedicated to designing, developing, manufacturing, and disrupting the status quo in order to make all our spaces cleaner and safer for everyone. Welcome to the Indoor AirPod, everyone. I'm Gary Moody, the host. My guest today is Josh Elker with Lit Thinking. Also sitting in on this today is the producer of the Indoor AirPod, J.B. Anderson. Josh, great to have you on today. Thanks, Gary, and thanks to J.B. as well. Yeah, before we get started about uh, Lit Thinking and, and what your mission is and all the things that you guys do, why don't you share a little bit about your career path today, Josh? Sure. Um, so for the relevant history, I've spent nearly a decade um, in indoor air quality and UVGI, um, ultraviolet germicidal irradiation. I got my start working with sterile air, um, was a really unique place to begin. Efficacy uh, was primary. Evidence-based design it was a, a company founded by Bob Shire, um, who's a trusted expert in a lot of the different ASHRAE understandings, a lot of the different papers. And so, um, you know, we really went about um, putting UVGI solutions out there in a way that um, was repeatable, scalable, um, and really stood by the work that we put forward. Um, and it was really great uh, to learn from there. And then after some time, uh, Sterile Air uh, merged uh, with uh, like UV Resources and Madison Industries as a collective group. Um, and that was a really unique experience as well. And I got to see another UV company all at the same time, um, which was a really great experience. Um, from that point, um, I moved forward to uh, work with Puro. Uh, Puro was also a really unique experience in that I got exposure to PCO uh, solutions, uh, LEDs, um, and then to FAR UV. So, and that kind of brings us to where we are today uh, with Lit Thinking and FAR UV Technologies. I appreciate that. You, you have a lot of experience in IQ, as I do, except, in, you know, we're polar opposites. But uh, and I feel like I've known you for about 15 years, but uh, we've been going back and forth on LinkedIn for a couple of years. Regarding lit thinking, why don't you share some information about your role with lit thinking? And of course, what, what's lit thinking all about? Uh, yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so my role at Lit Thinking, I am the Director of Business Development um, for the commercial side for the business. Um, Lit Thinking is a company that uh, is really trying to become the thought leader and aspires to be the thought leader um, for far UV technologies and actually safe buildings everywhere. Uh, it is definitely a venture uh, into changing the way that people live and function. Um, and what we are really trying to do is utilize far UV technology. Um, and the solutions of that for continuous, autonomous surface and air disinfection in room um, for all different types of applications, whether those are, you know, office spaces, whether those are hospitals, whether schools, you name it. Um, and so really trying to change the standard from one thing being a comfortable space to a healthy space to a truly safe space where we are not being, you know, at risk of being infected by other people in facilities, where we have lower absenteeism, where, where we treat clean air the way that we would expect like clean water these days. Um, and that's really kind of the goal um, of uh, lit thinking. And, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what we offer to the market, uh, it's a little bit brand new. I'm um, just recently um, kind of had a product launch. 
Um, and so it'll be really exciting to see what happens in the future. Um, let me also add in um, that there are some really great things being done with monitoring um, your indoor air quality within buildings as well with lip thinking that were really kind of unique. That was a question I was going to ask you at some point. What, what you're thinking is long term about the future of indoor air quality monitoring in buildings. I, I don't ever recall entering a building for whatever reason and duration where I was somewhat reassured that the IQ was very significantly being addressed. And I, I think there's a big future, but, you know, five years from now, where do you think the indoor air quality monitoring will be? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So ultimately, I think that's one of the big changes we've seen from the pandemic. Um, I think the awareness of people uh, for what goes on in their spaces and their safety um, has really changed. Uh, and with that, uh, the monitorization of what goes on in space, temperature, humidity, IAQ index, uh, all of those different things, VOCs, um, are something that we should be aware of uh, when we go into you know, spaces. The same thing, we should be aware of uh, what is happening with the sanitization um, of our air or surfaces in our buildings. Um, and so it's kind of a 50-50. Uh, one part of it is that uh, knowing is half the battle. So good. I'm very glad that we know uh, what goes on in buildings. And then the next step is doing something about it. And so I see solutions um, being put together where both of those exist. If you look to the history of what I've seen with UVGI or other technologies, uh, one of the challenges we face is it's an invisible threat treated by a relatively invisible solution. Whether you are placing UV in an air handling unit, chances are you're not going to be looking at it. And if you do, it's through a viewport. It's still, it's just a blue light, right? Um, and if you look at something like far uv for example uh within spaces uh, a faint you know glow through the you know the fixture itself but really you're not seeing it and so being able to monitor being able to then trust that we're getting the disinfection or sanitization that we need um i think that's where the future of the industry is really moving okay yeah great, great answer and appreciate you addressing that where do you think the indoor air quality industry will be josh five years from now sure I fundamentally believe that all of the spaces that we are in uh, will have a superior level of safety than they currently do. Uh, we will be monitoring that on our phones or similar type of communication. That's another thing. The way that we digest information today um, is changing, and I'm not so sure that the IAQ or UVGI, all the different you know groups that fit into that ventilation filtration, um, have gotten to that step or communicating that. And so I, I think the internet of things um, is a big part of it. I think our ability to not only, again, show people the problem, but communicate the solution um, is where it will be. Um, and, I, and I think as compared to, as I said before, clean water, uh, clean air will be the expectation of patrons. When you go shopping for the holidays, you'll look to buildings and go, where do I wanna go? And where do I wanna walk in and shop? And will those be places that are safer? Um, will those be places where you consider maybe you have a relative that's immunocompromised? Well, that changes what grocery store you go to or what, you know, different places of that nature. So I really think the consumer will have a lot more active uh, awareness. Um, and I think we will demand as a public uh, to be safer in general. Yeah, that's well put. I agree with you. Um, regarding indoor air quality monitoring, do you think there's a, uh, also a future for having local outdoor air quality monitoring work in tandem? with indoor air quality monitoring? 
Yeah, I, I do. And I think we need to be the threats are outside and inside. And I think people get confused by that. And we think outdoor air and just pumping in ventilation makes a safer building. But influenza is carried by migratory birds. So if you think about something as simple as that pathogen, right, it's typically coming from outside or people are getting it by sharing it in multiple places. Um, so you see those different types of vectors. At the same time, we have forest fires. We have a lot of climate change issues that are that are prevalent. Um, and, if you know, this last summer, there was a tremendous amount of particulate in the air um, and we need solutions for that filtration is very important but if you were just to ventilate air from the outside in and shift it in and out i mean that's really not solving some of the that you know the problems we have with outside air uh, so it's it really needs to be outside air awareness it needs to be indoor air awareness we need to have sanitization of all those different things um, and we need to have you know again the trusted tried true solutions of ventilation filtration and UVGI in our facilities Hey, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things that are going to happen here in the next five years, I think. And I say five years, I don't know the exact time, but I, my hunch is that the public is going to just demand a lot more be done. Regarding yeah. how you guys go to market, how do you go to market? Uh, do you work with engineers, architects, um, direct to end users, HVAC contractors? Sure. sure. Um, so historically, I think if uh, I'm going to take it a step back and look historically. Um, and I think that's probably one of the challenges uh, I think we've seen with the UBGI market is several ways it gets integrated into facilities. So if you look at uh, something like uh, the plan and spec world, right? Um, you have a specification that goes out. And unfortunately, I'm not always so sure there's a commissioning or make people are making sure that what they originally designed ends up in facilities, right? Um, and then you look to retrofit and uh, that can be a whole host of different things. And I think the pandemic was a good example that, you know, there's a lot of caveat emptor. People were buying different things and not sure of it. Um, so if you look to what we're doing um, with lit thinking, and not only are we participating in, U in FAR UV advocacy, that's a huge part of what we're doing uh, with the business and really trying to set up a scientific board to move forward the technology and understandings of everybody. Um, but that plays into what our market strategy is, right? And so um, right now we are looking to really capitalize on four main verticals uh, as a business. Um, that would be commercial, healthcare, government, um, and then kind of sports and, and public venues. Um, and really kind of going after those areas as really key places where we can make differences in what happens in everyday lives of people. Um, and some of that entails being part of plan and spec world. Some of that is retrofit. Um, but we really think that the people that manage the commercial facilities, as well as uh, the, the different groups uh, that have like retail spaces can see this as a great advantage for their customers and really trying to drive their business. Guys, if I may chime in real quick, Gary and Josh, I have a question because I've been listening. Um, you, you, Gary regularly points out and, and frames questions in five-year increments looking forward. But if we look five years backwards, pre-pandemic in particular, a lot of these conversations, to be blunt, just really didn't exist. So my question is with the acceleration of technology, and some of this technology is really generations, uh, you know, generationally old, um, where do you see the role and how important is making sure that testing, human testing, uh, large space, small space, what role does testing have in making sure that new products uh, like your, your products in your lane uh, are able to be consumed and accepted to meet the accelerated demand of IAQ uh, higher thresholds? 
Yeah, so I think if you look and, and you look historically, uh, I'll start with five years ago and kind of move to now. One of the things that occurred prior to the pandemic was most of the, the UVGI world was in education at first and then in adoption. And so you really almost had to teach people what UV was doing, where to apply it and what went on with it. And with the pandemic, there were all different types of IAQ solutions, UVGI, you know, UVGI um, ventilation and filtration, and being that they're scalable and peer reviewed and scientifically trusted, um, those came to the forefront, right? But the, the change was that the, the demand curve uh, in general is different than it was five years ago. And so if you look to what's going on now and you look to what we're doing with FAR UV, again, it's a peer-reviewed technology. So it fits, right? It's part of UVGI. It is ultraviolet germicidal irradiation that goes back a hundred and some years. Now, the difference um, is, you know, the wavelength. And we're going to see a lot of that here in the next five years as well in terms of LED. So one of the challenges that UVGI has had is the ability to actually produce light at the correct wavelength and to specifically dial that in. Um, so you've been kind of held to thresholds of like 222 is an area that an eczema uh, lamp can produce. 253.7 is something that a mercury vapor lamp can produce. Um, and now with LEDs, I think in the future and semiconductors, we're going to be able to say that maybe 235 is better than 222. And, you know, maybe 270 is better than 254. And so it's going to continue to evolve. Um, but with the efficacy that we have with the scientific basis, and especially with like lit thinking, I mean, there's people like Dr. Brenner, I mean, Ed Nardell, I mean, all these brilliant, brilliant people that have been the forefront um, of IAQ um, that are helping to push and boost um, this technology. And, and I really think that's uh, where things move to. Um, and I really think that's kind of, uh, you know, what we see with the technology in general. Regarding um, the past COVID-19 era, uh, you and I both know this, there's over 2,000 schools that bought air purifiers of all different types in the COVID-19 era. Looking back, what are your thoughts about what went on in schools and the subject of IQ and, of course, what happened? Yeah, that, yeah that's a great, that's a really, really uh, <laughs> sticky subject. Uh, so unmitigated disaster, I believe, is probably one phrase you could you could possibly use. Uh, now, and I, I don't blame any of the schools. Uh, you're asking, you know, people to j try and become experts on something overnight and try and put you know, their best foot forward. Um, and they were being being bombarded uh, by different companies that were offering different technologies. And it became hard for, I think, a lot of the schools to differentiate what is fact versus what is marketing. Um, and, I, and I think we've seen that play out. And I think, Gary, we've seen that on a lot of the different IAQ posts. And, we've, and I think we'll continue to see that subject uh, discussed for some time. But I think at the heart of it, the saddest part for me is that we had a generational opportunity to improve the environment for kids in schools that had not been addressed for a long time. The air exchanges per hour that was acceptable in a school is not acceptable in any other type of building and had been because, well, you know, that's just what happened in the production and making of those buildings. Um, and so we had this unique opportunity to finally put people in a better environment to learn to where they do perform better. Harvard, Harvard, uh, you know, TH Chan School of Public Health has shown that you put people in a better indoor environment, more air exchanges, healthy air, they perform better, they retain their information um, better. And so, we kind of lost uh, a great chance to really put our kids in a great spot with a lot of money and it's still not even been spent. Um, so I, I'd love if we had a giant do-over, frankly, where we all could go at it again and, and say, hey, can we help out all these schools and not have such a panic and realize this is a generational movement for the next 20 years in your facilities and not just to make the parents shut up for five minutes, you know, because they're scared of their kid getting COVID. Um, and, and I think that's, um, 
I think that's where the the challenge has been um, with schools. Now, thankfully, there are many, many schools. I've worked with quite a few myself um, that have put in fantastic, uh, you know, different solutions. Uh, UBGI, they've upgraded ventilation. They've added more filters. Um, so that's good. Um, but there are also inherent challenges in that. A MERV-13 filter, um, that's a two-inch MERV-13, may not have a MERV-A rating of, of the same. And I think some people bought them under those, you know, understandings as well. Um, so... We kind of failed, but I think some schools are better off and I'd love to see the rest of those ESSER funds that are extended used in the correct way. I think that would be you, great. You bet. A couple of weeks ago, almost, uh, there was a segment on CBS 60 Minutes News and it was about mm -hmm. indoor air quality. Did you see that by chance, Josh, with uh, Joe Allen? And if you did, you know, what were your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, great, great. Uh, and, you know, I, and Lindsay Marr, I believe, as well. Um, and, you know, I've, I've followed both Joe and, and Lindsay for quite some time. Um, again, part of that, that group that I think has really stood strong um, with ASHRAE, U.S. Green Building Council. There's, there's quite a few others that I think have been um, lights uh, in the darkness in many ways. And so I, I thought it was really compelling. Um, and, and it's good uh, that the message resonated with so many people. Uh, we've these, This is nothing new, um, but I, I, I think the framing of it makes it new for everyone. The, what I mean by it not being new is the threats have been present prior to that. And we knew the solution prior to the pandemic, and we know the solution after the pandemic. But this has driven research. This has pushed us to better understand and put our finger on what those solutions are so we can enact those. So we don't accept the status quo and we actually make these buildings, again, not just comfortable, which is an HVAC understanding for temperature, and not just healthy with particulates, but safe to where they're disinfected. We understand the risk from person to person within spaces. Uh, so it's not acceptable that the desk next to you gets you sick or the kid next to you or the teacher gets it from a student. I mean, we shouldn't accept that. Um, and I really think that the, the piece by 60 Minutes did a nice job of moving that narrative forward. Yeah, I was glad to see it. What I liked about it is that uh, there's an unprecedented amount of environmental outdoor news it's reported literally every day and it's just not, not in the u.s it's worldwide it's about climate change and decarbonization solar and wind but it's essentially non-existent regarding in a mainstream news cycle the indoor environment it just does not get any publicity and i hope that will change there's a if i'm not mistaken there's some dangerous uv light products out there that are being offered that have been offered is there, is there not uh, do you see stuff online? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things going on, right? So there are UV products that are maybe not as safe as they should be. There's not the correct understanding. I also think there is an inability to correctly design the right system for a solution. We value engineer, unfortunately, all too many systems um, and maybe don't take the proper steps. And it can be mercurial if you look at the handbook and ASHRAE. Um, there's a couple of things that are a little bit hypocritical or conflicting where it mentions a threshold of a dosage that can be affected and then the same sentence says designed for specific pathogen but the can be effective dosage is not tied to a pathogen whatsoever so that becomes very challenging um, and, and and then when you look to technologies like uh, far uv um, so far uv is a wavelength of uv light that is safe for people to be exposed to and if you do the correct things and you can get ul certified uh, to understand you know where your threshold limit value is so people in spaces um, can be exposed to X amount at X height and areas. Um, so what you are doing is guaranteeing the safety of the people with the solution that you're putting forward. I think some of the other dangerous 
um, things that we see is maybe less UV light and maybe some of the emerging technologies, right? I mean, I think there's a divide there. Um, you know, UV is tried and true and tested and scalable, and we can talk about the dosage for SARS-CoV-2, whether it's in water, it's in your water treatment, whether it's in air, whether it's aerosolized, we can do that. But a lot of the oxidative technologies are the ones that I think are, are a real challenge for people. Because there's really a tough time to say that if I generate some type of chemistry within the air, what is the byproduct of that? And then what is that byproduct's ability to disinfect that pathogen? And there really hasn't been that level of understanding where you look at 253.7 and there's mathematical modeling done well over a decade ago on how much energy is necessary to remove a set volume of a pathogen in a space or in general. Um, and so I think that's kind of the you know what we're dealing with. Um, at the same time, um, I, I think the ASHRAE is in the right place and really 241 and the new things they're coming out with um, are putting the industry uh, on the correct foot for making sure that we're doing what we say and saying what we do and have efficacy in what we apply. Uh, guys, this is JB again. Um, Josh, I, I loved what you were just talking about in a particular comment words uh, stood out to me and that was value engineering. You know, because historically in the commercial building space in particular, value engineering was simply uh, provide a good product at a low cost if we were going to dumb it down. Uh, that's that's what it was. And in the IAQ world, you know, we hear value engineering uh, as far as implementing it in these large community spaces such as schools and nursing homes and hospital facilities, et cetera. Um, what's your thought and opinion on actually trying to maybe define value engineering a little bit differently because what we're really talking about in the IAQ space as it pertains to that, we're talking about health. So how do we put a, a price tag or a value on humans within this B2B vernacular of products and growth and renovation and construction Etc. How do you guys at Lit Thinking and yourself, and maybe just speak for yourself from an opinion standpoint, how do you view value engineering when it comes to air, health, and dollars? So value engineering, uh, unfortunately, can be a seemingly four-letter word. I don't mean to kind of <laughs> kick it. It's a minimum standard, right. unfortunately. Uh, so that, that can become a challenge, right? In my experience, when we see UV, like in the HVAC applications, we value engineered, you have a 60 by 60 inch coil in one lamp. And somebody checks the UV box and says, well, it's doing something. Um, and, and, and so we want to move away from that. Right. So we ultimately uh, want to move away from that. And I think there's some really good models out there for cost equivalency and risk reduction. Um, and so I, I think if you look at what, you know, trying to remove risk down to a less than 1%, and I think that's what 241 really looks and aims to do, or we look to another kind of similar. Um, type of field, like look at fire prevention, for example, right? You have a cost per square foot, two to seven dollars per square foot. You know, you have roughly one point some million fires in the United States, 14 billion dollars in damage, you know, so a number in, in those ballparks approximately. And we can say, okay, what is our cost assessment? And what did that, what was the human life cost? You know, we lost 3,800 people, you know, last year to fires or something of that number. And we can say, okay, well, what did illness cost us? I mean, I can tell you more than 3,800 people died of COVID. I mean, that, that one's a no-brainer, right? Um, and so we can look to how many people are, you know, affected by influenza, and we can try and compare um, to really give people an understanding of what that value engineering or, or what that dollar amount is equal to. Um, because, on, you know, at, in the end, it's going to come down to a dollar comparison. Great. 
Josh, let me ask you this. In your opinion, if you had to, you know, apply your best estimate in a COVID-19 era, where was the virus most commonly transmitted? Was it in buildings? Was it in homes? Was it in public transportation? Uh, none of us apparently know. Uh, and I wish we did, but what are your thoughts about that? The really kind of interesting subject in that uh, the state of Minnesota where I live uh, did testing and so did Michigan and their DNR on, on deer population, uh, which, okay, and large percentages of deer tested positive for COVID, for SARS-CoV-2, which came kind of drew, made me think about that a little bit. So how is that happening? I mean, are people, you know, going to the salt lick and kissing deer? I, I don't think that that's the, that's not what's happening. I mean, I, I know that it's deer season here in Minnesota, so people feed them a lot to make them a little easier to hunt, but I don't think that's the same thing. Um, and I, I, so to the larger subject, I, I think it was ever present in our air in several places, right? It was being exhausted out of buildings. Um, it was floating on the breeze and, you know, moving in the air like any other pathogen um, currently does. Um, but I, I also think when we, you know, look to our home, um, it, it, we don't have a lot of great air exchanges in our house. And there were some unique cases where people would sleep next to each other and not get it. So there's some real mercurial data that exists. But the areas that I think, in my experience, that were most prevalent were large social gatherings, right? Um, places that we were, you know, crammed in tight together. You saw examples of like uh, singing, choral groups, right? Choirs. And there were a lot of issues where you had super spreader events or conference rooms where you have people tightly packed together, not a lot of ventilation. Um, but it also could be as something as seemingly as innocuous as like the physical therapy room at a long-term care facility. You go down to the physical therapy room, you breathe a lot for 45 minutes and you leave and somebody comes in right after you. Um, so I, I think it comes down to two things, spaces that have a lot of traffic and spaces that have a lot of breathing. And then if you add those in with maybe a lack of ventilation or inadequate, you get a perfect breathing ground for it. Um, but to the whole point, I believe it was everywhere, still is. Um, but yeah, there, there's areas that we could target for sure. But regarding your home, why don't you share what you specifically do at home to regarding the IAQ? You know, what type of filter you use? Um, hey, is that a MERV 13 by chance? Uh, and obviously, do you monitor your air and UV tech? Uh, um, I do. <laughs> yeah, so I have several things uh, that I do for my home. Uh, number one, I do have IAQ monitoring. So um, I know, uh, you know, weather, you know, particulate count, um, anything like that, making sure VOCs of that nature. Um, I do use a UVGI product in my air handling unit and have for a while to reduce the mold. Um, in terms of, you know, really improving my ACH, um, I do have portable in-house HEPA filter um, that I use as well uh, when times are a little bit worse. And then I, I maximize uh, my MERV filtration uh, on my unit at home uh, to the level. Unfortunately, my HVAC system is a little bit old, so I, I'm a, I, don't, I don't know how much it could really push through a true MERV 13 at this point. So the MERV A rating on it might be a little knocked down, but don't tell anyone. Did, with the wildfire smoke that you uh, experienced, did, did you notice a, an uptick in the PM 2.5? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and I, I think there were, on top of that, whether anecdotal or not, um, I think there were a lot of health uh, consequences. I mean, a lot of a lot of headaches, a lot of feeling off. Um, it, it was definitely a unique summer uh, for many of my previous that I, in terms of the exposure to the smoke and the prevalence of the smell. Um, and then also at home, I mean, I did notice that. And then the VOC change was also noticeable to a certain level. So.
How about how about on your filter? Did you notice uh, a, a change in the color of it? Did it go from bringing brand new looking within 30 days? Uh, did you take a look at it? I, you know, I, I don't think I gave it the that hard of a study. I'm sure it had a little bit more darkness to it, but yeah, that would you know, I, I probably should have paid more attention to that. I think I just changed it out a little bit more effectively and a little bit more often, frankly. So I, I just you know, there's a combination going on. There you always load is a positive and load is a negative. Um, so you need load to cut, you know, to cover up the gaps and spaces, uh, but then there reaches a, a point where it's not doing its job and you also need to not have a bunch of, you know, dirty filters, uh, you know, pushing air that's dirty into your home. So you bet there's um, obviously the winter flu season is approaching. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of experts that believe that low humidity, dry air is more conducive to the transmission of disease indoors. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I do. And I, and I think there's a couple of things that go on in the wintertime. Uh, number one, uh, you also have the inability to disinfect viruses outside, right? Um, so the air outside um, has less light. Um, it's a little colder. It's you know a little more prone um, for viruses. But yeah, all indoor environments, um, because of control of humidity at that certain level, tend to, and especially in the wintertime, kind of create you know more aerosolized particles that stay in the air longer on um, the transfer for the buildings. I mean, that's a known thing that our, that our, you know, our air handling units and our buildings move um, pathogens from meters of pathogens in a building environment um, and have been known to do so for quite some time. And the same thing, they also, you know, create sick building syndrome. If we don't treat our air handling units and our coils, we're actually creating, uh, you know, environmental hazards all the while, you know, pathogens as well as the VOCs. And then mycotoxins is a whole other subject that nobody really talks much about, um, but definitely has a debt on people in their life. In a COVID-19 era, do you think that Legionnaire's disease may have been a little bit of part of it? Uh, it gets very little publicity. Uh, it doesn't make the mainstream news. And some of the people tell me that they think it's a lot more common than it's really reported. What do you think about, you know, Legionnaire's disease and, uh, you know, what type of threat is it? Yeah, so I was having a, a really good conversation with our chief science officer, Janet Price, the other day and, and exactly about this subject. Um, and, and definitely it is more prevalent um, than people understand. And I, I think one of the things that's confusing, though, is that it's a multi-stage vector. Uh, it, it, it's quite complex, uh, kind of how people get Legionnaire's disease and it has to do with protozoans and, and a lot more uh, biology that I'm probably not qualified to speak on. Um, but at the same time, uh, one of the things I do know is that there's some unique ways that people come in contact with it. Uh, water fountains, aerosolized water fountains in public, uh, and people have been sued and there's been liability for that. Obviously, our air handling units have the ability to, you know, to spread that as well. And I, and I knew that cooling towers and, and, and bird droppings were a, a kind of a nasty combination for a long time. And again, speaking to that um, kind of multi-stage um, kind of development of the pathogen and then, you know, how people come in contact with it. I, yeah, you know, one of the conversations I had a long time ago with Bob Shire, again, microbiologist that started Sterile Air, um, he'd always say, you've drank more Legionella than you could imagine. Um, and I, so I was like, oh, I don't know if that's good. He's like, just don't breathe it. I'm like, okay, well, th thanks, Dr. Bob. Um, but yeah, so it, Legionella is a, is a problem and I think it's everywhere and, and we need to be smart about it. Um, and there are some really great solutions uh, if people are willing to invest in them. If somebody asked you what your definition of clean air indoors is, what would you say, Josh? 
Yeah, so three main things, right? Uh, number one, um, we need to make sure that we're ventilating. So CO2 is a big issue, right? So, you know, CO2 is something that you know, nobody wants to be hypoxic. That's not fun. I don't think it works for brain development, brain function, brain usage. Uh, so we need to make sure that we have adequate air exchanges within um, all of the rooms. Uh, so we're constantly moving that in. Um, and I know that, that comes at a cost, right? Um, and then, have, you know, we have to have filtration to the maximum ability that we can financially sustain. And do we need HEPA filters in every building? Probably not. Maybe. I, I don't know. But that'd be incredibly costly. Um, and I know that sometimes, you know, some of those things are not necessarily um, high in the priority because you'd probably have to redo the vast majority of HVAC systems um, and because they can't handle that level of pressure. Then on top of that, um, I believe uh, UVGI is the way to go. And I think you need two forms of UVGI in every facility. Um, I believe you need UV on the downstream side of the cooling coil in every building. We need to remove uh, the biofilms that grow there. Um, also, there's a substantial energy savings. You have ROIs of less than a year or two. Uh, you have to have the right dosage. The 50 or 100 is not going to get you there. you got to design for aspergillus and the biofilm 750 or higher. Um, and, and, and it has to be done correctly, minimums um, and, and depth of coil. Um, and if you do so, energy savings, you're removing, um, you know, a, a whole load of problems that you're generating. And then also you need in-room solutions like 222 and, and the far UV that lit thinking um, is, is um using. And what that'll do is that's going to solve your problem of transmission from person to person, right? Which is a, you're limited mechanically if you just place it in the HVAC system. Um, and this allows us to then not only disinfect the air, but go into bathrooms um, and things like noroviruses or E. coli that gets aerosol, you know, kind of gets aerosolized in different places and disinfect not only the surfaces in the building, but the air within our facility. Um, and so you don't have person to person transmission. We have clean HVAC that's energy efficient. We have particulate that is getting removed by filtration because UV is not going to solve that. And then we have ventilation, which is going to get rid of the CO2 within the building. And so by getting rid of and controlling all of those different uh, fields, we end up in an ideal environment. In the future, do you think we'll all see someday uh, robots roaming in space uh, with either UV tech or some sort of tech that's uh, reportedly going to improve the quality of air indoors and protect us? I think there's some pretty easy ways we can do it right now. Um, I, I think autonomous, continuous, uh, far UV, uh, I mean, that's what we're doing at Lit Thinking. Um, and so I, I think when you look to a facility and you look to like the ceiling, all right, you see your fire sprinkler, you see your light, it, there needs to be, um, you know, uh, a far UV device uh, from Lit Thinking or otherwise monitoring um, not only what's going on in your air, um, and tracking that and communicating that to the facility or the users and the people in that space, but then also disinfecting uh, those areas as well. You know, if we had uh, some other types of uh, robots and spaces or some other autonomous devices that could maybe, one of the challenges with UV is, is um, you know, line of sight, right? You know, if there's sh shadowing and things of that nature. So if there are ways to maybe solve for around that, um, but yeah, I, I think we need to make sure that we are using the least amount of chemicals possible. Um, I think we have the tools uh, available to us to make our lives better and safer. Um, and now we just need to kind of step to the plate and start hitting some of the pitches. Do you think someday we'll see uh, also some sort of home appliance or countertop appliance where we stick our hands in it and UV tech is involved and maybe we just never have to wash or hands with soap and water. <laughs> Is that day? You think that day might come someday? That's, a, that's interesting. 
Um, I, I think this, I'm no expert on surfactants, but I'm pretty sure you still need to get uh, something to get the dirt off or under in between on the skin. Um, but you know, in, in general, I think people should have their indoor spaces treated with UV. So I, I think that would be a, a proper step, uh, for people. And then even in the beginning can be the, the key areas of gathering or different places like that. Um, and so, you know, in a, in a home, it could be in your kitchen or it could be in, in your family room. But, you know, realistically, you know, would you accept unclean water out of one of your faucets in your house? Of course not. Hey, Josh, we're, we're running low on time. I, I want to thank you for coming on the Indoor AirPod. Sure would like to have you back at a later date. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, uh, so you can find us at litthinking.com. Um, that is one place that you could find us. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn um, under litthinking, and then litthinking underscore on Twitter is another place. Um, and then you can find me on, link on LinkedIn as well, Josh Elker. Um, yeah, um, and that, those are kind of the, the common places. Fantastic, Josh. Thank you very much for being on the Indoor AirPod. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Indoor AirPod, produced by Gaslight STL, your podcast partner. Be sure to give our show a follow to keep up with upcoming guests and topics. And please reach out with any questions or guest suggestions. <laughs>